Welcome to Crime Biscuit. I'm your host, Paulette. Today's episode, we're going to talk about killing cousins, Fred Waterfield and David Gore. Hey Biscuits, did you miss me last week? I had a water pipe that decided to go about its merry way last week and put four inches of water in my newly renovated downstairs. So my husband and I have been pumping water, removing brand new flooring, and generally being irritated with water. But I'm back, so let's get started. David Gore was born August 21st, 1953. He had a fairly uneventful childhood as far as serial killers go. There wasn't any traumatic abuse, physical or emotional, though supposedly his mother liked to read the Bible to him, which is an odd, except she apparently did it while wearing only her bra and underwear. Also of note, David was a pretty sickly child, suffering from lots of common childhood ailments, and then there was this little incident with some ants. As a toddler, he fell into a bed of ants and was bitten pretty badly. Most of it was around his face and head, and after the bites, he ran a very high temperature that reportedly burnt his brain. And according to journalist Melissa Holzman, Gore was never quite right after that. David likely developed some kind of edible complex or desire for his mother by the underwear reading sessions. Then he finds a kindred spirit in his cousin, Fred Waterfield. When Gore was 13, he and Fred discovered that they both had rather dark sexual desires. Turns out that these two were sexually aroused by the female members of their family. And since they couldn't act on them, that left them sexually frustrated. David and Fred shared these thoughts with each other, and that started talk about their fantasies of rape, and eventually rape and murder. They'd talk about kidnapping women and raping them, killing them. In the book, The Serial Killer Letters by Jennifer Furio, Gore said the fantasies were bad seeds that only needed to be watered before they would grow into fruition. Waterfield's first dirty deed was when he sexually molested David's sister, Wendy, who was just eight years old. And if that wasn't bad enough, David had held his little sister down for Freddie to rape. So up until this point, they were basically pervs, doing the peeping Tom thing, which is totally creepy. In fact, David ended up getting fired from a job he had at a gas station because apparently he had drilled a hole in the wall between the men's and women's restrooms so he could sit and peep at the women. So Freddie and Dave, this relationship was based on their shared sadistic violence that they directed at women. Waterfield, though, was a football player and fairly popular. David, on the other hand, was 275 pounds and did not interact with girls as a teenager. David was into guns and hunting. A friend of theirs, Phil Williams, who went to school with the boys, was a member of a family that was pretty close to the Gore family. Williams would grow up to become a police officer, and he will enter our story again. But according to him, the two cousins, David and Fred, 
were almost like brothers, and they were almost like brothers to him as well. He also said that Fred, or Freddie as he called him, thought a good time included throwing fruit into car windows that he had chased down, and then he would take off as the car's owner tried to catch him. Not my idea of a good time, but hey, compared to what Fred would later end up doing, that's pretty tame. David was pretty laid back, awkward, like I said, with the girls, but he did enjoy hunting and knew where all the good hunting spots were. He knew a lot of isolated places, according to Phil Williams. But Phil also points out that the difference between the two cousins was this. Waterfield liked to go after the prey. This is when they're hunting. But Gore preferred to sit back and let the prey come to him. Williams said, quote, I often felt from the beginning that Freddie probably inspired this whole thing in one shape or form. I think that Freddie was the stronger of the two personalities. I can't imagine David doing anything without having been inspired in some way by Freddie. So David gets out of high school and he gets married to his first wife, Donna. And by the time he turns 21, he has a son named Michael. This marriage doesn't last long. And just one year after Michael is born, David and Donna are done. But David does not waste any time. The same year, he marries a woman named Connie Jean. Also living a so-called normal life is Freddie, who is married with twin daughters. This so-called attempt at a normal life is really only skin deep, though. Freddie and David are still cooking up ways to bring their sadistic desire to kidnap and rape a woman. In June of 1976, Diane Sullivan leaves a gas station after filling up. As she's driving, she hears a popping sound and pulls over because it's pretty obvious to her that she has at least one flat tire. While she's right, there are two flat tires. She does not know that the reason they're flat is because Fred and David shot those tires. David and Fred pull up alongside her and offer assistance. Their version of assistance is this. When Diane gets out, they put a gun to her side and force her into their car. Diana's a warrior, though, and she isn't going down easy. When she sees a car coming, she jumps out of the back seat of the car, basically throws herself into the road. The couple in the car stop and rescue her while the cousins flee. Diane does report the incidents to authorities, but they don't have anything to go on. Diane will find out later in 1983 when watching the news that she had come very close to dying that day. Their next attempt is in July of 1976. This is by Waterfield. A friend's ex-wife called and asked for a ride. Why did she need a ride? Because when she'd got up to head to work, she had two flat tires. Later, she'd find out they were slashed. This woman's name was Angela Hommel. Waterfield showed up and said he'd take her to work and then later to get her tires fixed. But instead of going to where she worked, he took her to an orange grove. When she questions this route, he says, it's a shortcut. And then, oops, he accidentally gets the car stuck in a ditch. Waterfield says he has to go get his cousin Dave to help them get the car out and to stay put. And Angela does stay put because she has no idea where she is. And at this point, she has no reason to fear Fred Waterfield, who her ex-husband had vouched for. Waterfield does come back and he's got David with him. Angela will tell police later that basically David didn't say anything. He just looked evil and creepy 
Fred reaches into the glove box and pulls out a gun. They both take turns raping Angela, and then they have a discussion about killing her throughout the entire ordeal. Once the raping is over, the threats get super violent. A knife is put to her throat, and the two men discuss killing her and cutting her up and feeding her to the alligators. For whatever reason, they end up releasing her if she promises not to tell anyone. Of course, she goes straight to the hospital, and she also reports the rape. The men are arrested and questioned because she knows them, remember? They claim, Fred and David, that the sex they had was consensual. Now, the police have photographs from the hospital of her injuries. But despite this, they ask Angela, not the guys, Angela, to take a polygraph. And then they tell her the results say she's lying. They then tell her that she can be prosecuted for lying and that David and Fred could sue her for libel. So Angela is basically forced by the sheriff's department to not move forward. Now, I'm not making accusations here, but interestingly enough, Fred and Dave's uncle works for the sheriff's department. Here is what I find the saddest part of all concerning what happened to Angela. Had they gotten these two then, maybe the other deaths wouldn't have happened. Angela ends up being a witness years later in the trial against them for the murder of Lynn Elliott. Angela at the time questioned District Attorney Bob Stone about why did they now believe her. He says that he never knew about the rape accusations against Fred and David. He says he didn't find out about it until right before Waterfield was to go on trial for two other murders. Since the sheriff's department had not moved forward with it, the state's attorney's office was never made aware of the accusation. That is sad, and that is upsetting. By June of 1981, David Gore is, get this, an auxiliary officer for the Indian River County Sheriff's Office. This is when he spots Lynn Autry. He knows her because she works for a police official in a nearby town. When she's not looking, he slashes her tire, and then he gallantly comes to her rescue when the car ends up undrivable. Lynn recognizes him as well, so he offers to change her tire, and then he tells her that her boss is waiting in a nearby Stucky's restaurant and wants to discuss a case with her. Now, this sounds pretty hokey to me, but then again, it's 1981. It's not like their cell phones, and she can text her boss and find out if this is the case. So Lynn ends up following him to the restaurant, and they talk for about an hour. For whatever reason, David ends up deciding she's not the victim for him, and he leaves. During the day, Gore works with his father taking care of a citrus grove, and at night, he patrols as a sheriff's deputy. Fred Waterfield is now living in Orlando, Florida, where he manages an automotive shop, though he regularly goes back home to Vero Beach. It doesn't take these two very long to figure out that David's badge and access to the often empty citrus groves are an excellent combo for rape and murder. Now, mind you, Waterfield is a ladies' man, but it seems he would rather have unwilling partners. He offers David a thousand bucks for each girl he finds and brings to Waterfield. Gore, who not only wants the money, but also wants to please his cousin, agrees to this. Now, the badge David carried didn't allow him to pull someone over unless an actual officer was with him. Several women escape his grasp for exactly that reason. But a teenager wouldn't necessarily know that. 
especially one that hadn't been in the United States for very long. 17-year-old Ying Ling lived with her mother, brother, and father in Vero Beach. Pu Ling, her father, was a fruit inspector at a local packing plant. Mr. Ling had actually been in the States for a while. He had come and established himself first, so he was way more familiar with our culture than his newly arrived wife and children. Mr. Ling worked the night shift and was often gone before his children returned from school. It was actually Ying getting off of the school bus that got David's attention. He spotted her getting off the bus, and then he stalked her for a couple of weeks. He eventually lured her, using the badge of course, into the car and took her home, to her house. He was surprised to find Mrs. Ling there, but he quickly adjusted his plan and told both women that they needed to come with him for questioning at the station in regards to an event that occurred in the neighborhood. But instead of the station, he took them to the Citrus Grove and to a trailer where he figured he could torture his victims unnoticed. He called Fred Waterfield to let him know he'd found some victims. When Ying's brother returned home, he finds his mother and his sister gone. The mother's purse and his sister's book bag are there, but there's no sign of them. He searches a nearby orange grove looking for them, thinking they might have gone for a walk, but there's no sign of them. When night rolls around and they haven't returned, he goes to a neighbor and the police are called. There's no sign of a struggle, and after contacting everyone the mother and daughter knew, they still didn't know anything. About 30 people were out looking, even though they had no idea where to look. And there were no suspects. Back at the trailer, Gore rapes both women while he waits for Fred to get there. When his cousin arrives, they tie up 48-year-old Mrs. Ling. They actually tie her to a tree, but the way that they do it, when she struggles to escape, it actually chokes her to death. Horrifyingly, her daughter is being raped in front of her as she is slowly dying. After Fred is done with Ying, he tells Gore, get rid of her. Gore dismembers both women and puts their bodies into steel drums that he buries among the orange trees. Now it's July of 1981, and 35-year-old Judy Daly, currently living in California, has returned to her hometown of Vero Beach, along with her two daughters, who are both teens. On the 15th of July, she drops her daughters off at a beach to hang out, and she goes to a nearby park called Round Island. She wants to read a book and relax. Unfortunately for her, David Gore sees her while she's quietly reading. He goes and disables her car and then skulks off to watch her with binoculars. Turns out the reason he's targeting her is because Judy is a blonde. It seems Waterfield hadn't been pleased with the Lings and he'd made no secret of his displeasure to Gore, who has decided that Judy should fit the bill. When Judy returns to her car, of course, it doesn't start. And a man with an auxiliary sheriff's badge comes to her rescue and offers to drive her to a phone. Judy accepts his offer of help, but once in the car, he pulls out a gun and secures her with handcuffs. He stops on his way to the orchard to call Fred and let him know he's got one and to meet him at the orchard. Fred and David both rape Judy, and then David kills and dismembers her. Gord then goes to a phone and calls Judy's family to let them know she had car trouble and she won't be able to pick up her daughters. 
This seems strange to the family, so they call police. And one of the tips the detective gets is that David Gore was not only seen at Round Island Beach that day, but someone had seen him at the phone booth with blood on his clothes around the same time the call had been made to the family. Later, when police find the car, they determine it's been disabled, and they assume they are looking at a possible kidnapping. No other evidence is found, and the tip on Gore is the only thing they have. Police question David and ask him if he was at Round Island. He says, yes, I was there checking the tide. Alrighty then. This seems pretty stupid to me, and it seemed pretty stupid to the cops. So they get a warrant to search his house and his vehicle. The clothes in question, the ones, the bloody ones that had been seen on him when he was making the phone call, have been washed, so there is no blood evidence to be found. They do find two hairs in his truck. These are compared to hairs retrieved from Judy's hairbrush that was back in California, and it's a match. So they arrest David, he goes to jail, and so does Fred, and we all live happily ever after. Not. The assistant state attorney's office says they cannot issue a warrant for David based on just the hair without a body or without more evidence. David clams up and that is that. Police will have to wait for now. The next intended victim was Dana Sturgis, 18 years old, who David had pulled over while wearing his uniform. He questioned her about a burglary, a fictitious one I might add, and claimed her car had been identified. He also said there were people who identified her and said she needed to follow him. He said he wanted to get a better look at her vehicle. Despite the fact that he was leading her down an isolated road, she followed. Fortunately, a fisherman saw them, and that forced David to abort the mission. He told Dana to go home. When she got home, she told her parents about it, and they went straight to the sheriff's department to report it. The police showed her some photographs, and she was able to identify Gore. Gore was questioned, and he had no good explanation for what he'd done. They couldn't tie him to Judy Daly's disappearance yet, but this little stunt gave them a pretty good reason to fire him as an auxiliary deputy. This was July 17th of 1981. Now his former co-workers start keeping an eye on Gore. Remember Phil Williams, high school friends with David and Fred? He's a policeman now, and he is quite irritated with this whole situation. He is beginning to suspect that David Gore might have something to do with the Ling women being missing, as well as Judy Daly. He also suspects that there are other deaths that no one knows about. The trailer in the Grove had been the location of another rape and murder of a woman whose car had broken down. Gore never identifies the woman, but he says he shaved off her pubic hair and kept it as a trophy. Then he strangled her to death. Marilyn Owens was the next intended victim. She was leaving the doctor's office, and as she approached her car, she saw a head pop up from the back seat of her car. She screamed when she saw this, and amazingly, a sheriff's deputy was coming out of the medical center and heard her scream. He comes running and finds David Gore hiding in the back seat, no shirt on, and an alcoholic beverage in his hand. He had a handgun, a police scanner, and some handcuffs with him back there as well. Gore's explanation? Wait for it. He says he was following his estranged wife and son, who supposedly had an appointment at the clinic. So you sit shirtless with a cocktail in hand and handcuffs waiting for your wife and son? 
Yeah. Okay, Dave. Anyway, he gets arrested. At his preliminary hearing, Assistant State Attorney James Balsiger tells the judge that the state has reason to believe that Gore is a suspect in the disappearances of the Ling women and Judy Daly. The judge, L.B. Vosell, said that while Balsiger didn't have the evidence to back up those suspicions, the judge did find it odd that every time a woman came up missing, Gore seemed to be nearby. He didn't think it was in the best interest of the community and its women to let Gore back out on the streets. You'd think, and so did I, that the judge would throw the book at him. Apparently, it was a coupon book because he gets an armed trespassing conviction and a five-year sentence. He serves less than two. After Gore's arrest, Fred and David decide that if they get the urge to kill again, they'll only do it together to help eliminate some of the risks. While David is serving his sentence, the police are trying to connect the cases together. Using a search warrant to take pictures of the truck Gore used at the Orange Grove, they try to pour over these pictures to see anything that could connect him. During this time, the police also interviewed Fred Waterfield, who was oh so surprised to hear what his cousin had done. But Fred also said that there was no way his cousin was connected to the missing women because David wasn't that kind of guy. Fred might have feigned surprise, but David's family didn't. His estranged wife, Donna, had lots of stories to tell, including one that involved blood on his shirt, which he claimed was from hunting. Police found hair and fibers in Gore's car that could potentially link him to the Ling case. But once again, they could not secure a warrant for an arrest. Donna told police that earlier that year, their dog had been rooting around in Gore's truck and had come up with two bras that did not belong to Donna. This caused a bit of a fight, I'd say. David puts Donna into the truck and drives her to the orange groves. He leaves her in the truck and gets into a backhoe. Then puts the bucket of the backhoe on the ground and then just sits there. After a while, he gets out and goes back to the truck and drives Donna home. Police, after hearing this, come to believe that David was going to kill Donna and bury her. For whatever reason, he didn't. But this makes police wonder if those two bras are from the Ling women. And it also makes them think perhaps they know where to look for the missing women. For an entire week, they dig in the location at the Orange Grove, but find nothing and have to give up. In March of 1983, David Gore is released on parole. Obviously, police are not going to just let David roam around since they suspect he's a killer. They are keeping a close eye on him. So close, in fact, that his mother lodges a formal complaint with the governor's office. Detective White is told to stop harassing Gore. White tries to convince his supervisor they, they all know Gore is guilty, and they're convinced that if they keep an eye on him, he'll eventually slip up. Despite this, he's told, nope, stay away. But White doesn't stay away. He and his fellow detective, Phil Redstone, just get sneakier about surveilling Gore. In May of 1983, two months after he's released from prison, David and Fred try to kidnap a sex worker in Orlando, but she gets away. Frustrated that they haven't gotten a victim, the two set their sights on two teenagers, Barbara and Angelica. Both are 14. 
Barbara's father, Mike, is sadly the last person to see her alive. He's driving past the 7-Eleven where he sees Barbara, who the family calls Barbie, outside of it with her friend Angelica. Shortly after he sees them, the two girls will get into a car with the cousins. It will be seven months before Mike finds out what happened to his daughter. Once David and Fred had the girls in the van, David pulled out a gun and tied them both up. Waterfield made David take over driving so he could do as he pleased with these two young girls. The cousins had their own likes. Fred liked younger women. Dave liked older ones. So this was Fred's cup of tea, but I'm pretty sure David was still enjoying it. When they were done with the girls, Gore shot them both in the head and Waterfield later dismembered them. I read that usually Gore did the dirty work because Fred didn't like getting his hands dirty. Gore took care of most of it, and he took trophies as well. Hair. Barbie's body was found in the grove, but later David says he disposed of Angel in the canal for the alligators to take care of, and she was never found. A bit of Barbie's hair was eventually found in the back of Fred's van. The final two victims, and the reason these monsters were finally stopped, were taken on July 26, 1983. Lynn Elliott and Reagan Martin had been hanging out at the beach with Lynn's brother. The Elliott house was just a couple of blocks from the beach. After a while, the two girls got bored at Vero Beach and made up their minds to go to Wasabo Beach, which was about 10 miles away. Lynn called her boyfriend, Tim, and asked him to pick them up when he got off work. Lynn's car was in the shop, so they decided they would hitchhike. Later that day, Carl Elliott, Lynn's father, asks his son Brian where Lynn is. Brian says he saw them get into a pickup truck and leave to go to another beach. Carl is incredibly worried. His daughter has never hitchhiked before. It was something the girls must have just decided to do on a whim. Now it was getting late and she wasn't back. Here is what happened to Lynn and Reagan. The cousins spotted them and offered to take them somewhere to smoke a joint. But once the girls were in the truck, wedged between Fred, who was driving, and Gore by the passenger door, the glove box falls open and Gore grabs a gun and puts it to Reagan's head. Gore will later say in a sworn statement that at first the girls acted like they thought it was a joke, but when Fred told them it wasn't, the seriousness of the situation became obvious to the girls. David Gore's parents were out of town, so the cousins handcuffed them and took them to the house. As they drove towards that house, they passed a car that had Fred's sister in it. Her name was Debbie Hyatt. Fred was paranoid and convinced that his sister had seen the four of them. Once at Gore's house, they took the girls into one of the bedrooms. The girls were forced to kneel down and put their faces into the bed. Fred, who Gore calls Freddie, took him out of the room to talk to him. Freddie was worried about his sister seeing them and said that he was going to go to his auto shop just in case Debbie stopped by to question him about the girls in the truck. He instructed David to leave the back door open so he could join in the fun when he came back. After Freddie left, Gore bound Lynn's hands behind her, handcuffed Reagan, and then put Reagan in another room. Reagan will later say that he said if they cooperated, he'd let them go, and that she was scared because he'd threatened that if she didn't shut up, he'd cut her throat. Gore sexually assaulted Lynn several times, and when he was bored with her, he went in and did the same to Reagan. He put Reagan in a closet, 
when he was done and went back to where Lynn was. But to his surprise, Lynn wasn't there. Reagan figured out that Lynn was escaping when she heard a door slam. Unfortunately, so did David. He chased Lynn, who was running down the road. David was yelling at her to stop, and when she didn't, he sent a warning shot over her head. She still didn't stop. She kept running. You think this only happens in horror movies when the victim is trying to escape, but sadly, it happened in real life to Lynn. She tripped, and that allowed David to catch up to her. He grabbed her when she tried to get up and run away, but she was resisting him, and David didn't like it. He threw her to the ground and shot her twice in the head. And this act is what seals his fate. Michael Rock, a teenager just out riding his bike, sees a naked man chasing a naked woman. He sees Gore catch up to the woman and try to drag her back. Then he witnesses Gore throw the woman to the ground and shoot her. Michael rushes home to tell his mom. Now I get the impression that mom thinks this is pretty far-fetched. So what does she do? She takes Michael back to the place and there she sees blood in the grass. So she knows Michael isn't telling tall tales. Now she goes and calls 911. While Michael is rushing off after witnessing Lynn's murder, David is stashing Lynn's body in the trunk of his parents' car in the garage. Then he goes back inside to Reagan, who is still in a closet. David tells her if she makes any noise, he'll kill her. He sits around listening to the police scanner because he knows the boy saw him. He moves Reagan up to the attic and ties her up with electrical cord. Detective Phil Redstone who along with White had been the two that decided they were just going to covertly keep watching Gore after they were told not to, Phil was ironically already on his way towards the Gore house. He was following a gut feeling he had. He felt it was time to go check the house out again. As he's going that direction, the call comes over the radio, and when he hears the address, he realizes he's already heading there. He arrives at the scene at the same time two uniformed officers arrive. In an attempt to create some mayhem, David makes a 911 call himself and claims that a man is chasing a girl and gives an address that is several blocks east of the Gore house. The confusion doesn't last very long because dispatch is able to determine the call came from the Gore house. Cops have the place surrounded, but Gore will not come out. Officer Phil Williams former high school friend of the cousins, is on the scene. Williams decides he can use his former relationship with Gore to convince him to come out. He's yelling, David, it's Phil, come on out. At the same time, Phil notices the car in the garage and that there is blood dripping out of it onto the garage floor. He calls other officers over and they force open the trunk. And there is Lynn, shot once in the back of the head and once in the jaw. It was at this moment that Williams realizes this is not the David he'd grown up with. This David is a monster. For 90 long minutes, Reagan is in the attic with Gore while police try to convince him to surrender. Police eventually force their way into the house and hear sounds coming from the ceiling. Gore surrenders and the police race up into the attic where they find a naked and bound Reagan. Police find the gun used to kill Lynn stuffed into the cushions of the couch. Now that they have Gore in custody, they need the driver of the truck, Fred Waterfield. They arrest him at the auto repair shop. At the time of his arrest, Waterfield said, quote, 
If that son of a bitch gets me in trouble, I'll kill him. At this point, the police didn't know that Fred was involved in anything. They'd been solely focused on Gore. The nervous and almost fearful way that Waterfield reacted made the police think that just maybe they needed to take a closer look at Fred. There are other murders we know about, but what about others? In letters that Gore wrote to Jenny Furio, he claims his first victim was his sister-in-law, Joanne. He claims he killed her, skinned her like a deer, and then cut her up and buried the pieces. There is no evidence to support this other than his telling it to his pen pal. He also told Furio he'd killed a 19-year-old friend that he'd known his whole life. Days before Gore's trial in December of 1983 for the rape and murder of Lynn Elliott, which carried a possible death sentence, David Gore admitted that Lynn wasn't his only victim. His attorney asked for a deal. If Gore leads them to other bodies, will they not seek the death penalty for those murders? The DA agrees, because there isn't much to lose. He isn't asking for a no death penalty in the case of Lynn Elliott, for which they have a very strong case. Gore also gives up Waterfield. When the bodies of the Ling women are recovered, they're found just a few feet from where Detective White had been digging a year and a half earlier. They were so close and had no idea. In the beginning, Gore said that Waterfield killed the other five women and he killed Lynn. But eventually, David would admit he killed all six and that Waterfield was his accomplice. He also went on to say he did it because he had other personalities. I don't believe it. Gore's lawyers, however, claimed that Waterfield was the mastermind and used his control to make Gore kidnap and kill on command. Gore goes ahead and agrees with this and says he went along with whatever Fred came up with. The jury doesn't buy it, and in March, they convict Gore and vote for the death sentence. Now, Waterfield goes on trial, and his line of bullshit is that his cousin is just trying to frame him. This is despite the fact there is plenty of evidence that Waterfield committed several rapes starting at a pretty early age. Even with Reagan's testimony, the jury only convicts Waterfield on manslaughter. Fred's attorneys say his client is convicted not for doing anything, but for not stopping something he knew was going to happen. Now, don't lose heart. It is not over for Waterfield. He goes on trial for the murders of the two teenage girls, Barbie and Angel. The state doesn't go for the death penalty on this one, though. They're afraid that the jury might let him walk because he isn't the one who murdered them. What the prosecutors have is a receipt from a gas station with Waterfield's signature. It comes from the Orlando gas station at the same time that the girls disappeared. Our friend Fred goes so far as to claim the receipt is a fake. It is pointed out to him that if that were true, the credit card company would have to be in on some kind of conspiracy with the cops. So Freddie is convicted and sentenced to two life sentences. In the 90s, Gore files an affidavit claiming his cousin Fred was completely innocent and Gore had acted alone. If there were any doubts as to the character of Fred, a rape victim from the past sets that straight. A neighbor of Fred's, who has always defended his honor, saying that it was all Gore and that Fred wasn't involved, has to face a hard fact. Her daughter Peggy comes forward and recounts that 10 years earlier, when she was 14, Fred had raped her. 
Lois, the neighbor, is devastated to find this out. They go ahead and keep this secret between them for another 28 years. 38 years after being raped by Waterfield, Peggy finally comes forward. She says that in 1973, a 20-year-old Waterfield offered to take her to see a field of flowers. She goes along and they end up in the orange grove where he rapes her. She says he laughed hysterically the whole time. Her exact words were, like a maniac. Later, after the news of the murders comes out, Peggy suffers a lot of guilt, wondering if she'd have come forward sooner, maybe those women wouldn't have died. Gore appeals his sentence, and one of the things he uses is the fact that the jury wasn't given a chance to see a demonstration of how far 356 feet is, which is the distance from which Michael Rock viewed the murder of Lynn Elliott. He also argues that the jury was shown gruesome photos of Lynn. The Florida Supreme Court upholds both the conviction and the death penalty. Gore then appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court. They refuse to hear the case. In 1987, a clemency hearing with the governor is held, but the governor refuses to grant clemency. On March 3, 1988, Governor Bob Martinez signs Gore's death warrant, but a month later, he has granted a stay of execution because new questions are raised about his defense and his sentencing. The end of the summer of 1988, the Florida Supreme Court denies his writ for habeas corpus. End of January 1989, Martinez again signs Gore's death warrant, which was stayed again in February. James Copeland, a longtime resident of Vero Beach, said this, quote, If the state doesn't want to put him to death, then bring him back to Vero Beach for 24 hours, and I am sure he will no longer be a problem. Another resident said, That guy still up there sucking up tax dollars. I thought he was going to be put away by now, and here we are, 27 years later. Tim McCullers, Lynn Elliott's boyfriend, who, by the way, was getting ready to propose to Lynn, said, quote, I don't want anything but him dead for my birthday. It would be the best birthday present ever. Summer of 1989 rolls around and the U.S. District Court reverses Gore's death sentence and orders a new sentencing phase. Why? Because Gore claims he was drunk at the time of Elliot's murder and not in control of himself. It would take three more years before a new sentencing hearing, but in 1992, he is unanimously sent back to death roll after Reagan Martin testified that she'd smelled no alcohol in his breath, and she ought to know because he raped her repeatedly. Gore goes on for years to take advantage of the system. He files various appeals with both the Florida and the U.S. Supreme Courts. This idiot even goes on to say that almost 30 years of waiting on death row should be considered cruel and unusual punishment. Like anyone cares what the murderer of six women has to say. Well, maybe the justice system does, but I don't. Luckily, the Florida state attorney also agreed that it wasn't a valid reason to appeal. In February of 2012, Governor Rick Scott signed Gore's death warrant. Gore again sought hearings claiming he had inadequate counsel and that the clemency process violated his constitutional rights. A judge denied both. Detective Redstone had a final question 
He wanted to ask Gore before he was executed. How many others are there? Well, Gore was done talking to police, but apparently a bit too enamored with himself to shut up altogether because he had a new pen pal, Tony Siglia. The letters that Gore wrote to Tony were featured in the book The Serial Killer Whisperer by Pete Early. Tony had suffered a traumatic brain injury and afterwards started experiencing fits of rage. Tony was fascinated with serial killers after his head injury, and he thought that maybe these fits of rage he was experiencing might turn murderous, or potentially could, and he didn't want to be like a serial killer. Some of them claim that their urges to kill come from brain injuries. So he starts corresponding with several serial killers in the hopes of finding out how not to cross these blurring lines. Here is one of the things that Gore said in those letters to Tony. Our favorite target was hitchhikers. We used to laugh and call them freebies because there was basically no risk involved and they were easy to catch. I mean, you have two men for hunting for one and one jumps right in the car with you. How simple is that? He also told Tony he told police there were other victims, but the police didn't pursue it because there wasn't enough evidence. And basically, they already had him because of the confession on five of them. Gore also said he never committed a crime without drinks, which brings us back to the bizarre shirtless cocktail in hand and the back of Marilyn Owen's car incident. He referred to it as Dutch courage. On the day of his execution, some of his relatives were outside and across the street and in an area designated for supporters of the death penalty. Amongst them were Fred Waterfield's twin daughters. They said they were glad Gore was dying. They blame him for falsely linking their dad to Gore's murders. I want to say that I feel bad for the twins, but really, how much denial are they in? If I were to play devil's advocate, and let's say Waterfield wasn't a rapist, but we know he is, but let's just say he isn't. He is. The fact that he was with Gore when they picked up Lynn and Reagan, and let's say he left, he left knowing those girls would be killed, then he is guilty as well. And he belongs in prison for that alone. On April 12, 2012, David Gore was put to death via lethal injection. And I say good riddance. I found the book The Killing Cousins by Jack Rosewood very helpful, as well as excerpts from The Serial Killer Whisperer by Pete Early. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram, Crime Biscuit, Facebook, Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast. Send me a Gmail at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Subscribe, rate, review, do your thing. Here's your final comp. Kissing cousins are kind of creepy. Killing cousins are downright nasty. And if you have either kind in your family, don't invite me to any reunions. Thanks for hanging out with me. I'll see you later in the week with a half biscuit. Till then. Bye.